Philippians chapter 3, beginning at verse 1. Not many of you should become teachers, my fellow believers, because you know that we who teach will be judged more strictly. We all stumble in many ways. Anyone who is never at fault in what they say is perfect, able to keep their whole body in check. When we put bits into the mouths of horses to make them obey us, we can turn the whole animal. Or take ships as an example. Although they are large and driven by strong winds, they are steered by a very small rudder wherever the pilot wants to go. Likewise, the tongue is a small part of the body, but it makes great boasts. Consider what a great forest is set on fire by a small spark. The tongue is also a fire, a world of evil among the parts of the body. It corrupts the whole body. It sets the whole course of one's life on fire. It is itself set on fire by hell. All kinds of animals, birds, reptiles, and sea creatures are being tamed and have been tamed by mankind, but no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. With the tongue we praise our Lord and Father, and with it we curse human beings who have been made in God's likeness. Out of the same mouth comes praise and cursing. My brothers and sisters, this should not be. Can both fresh water and salt water flow from the same spring? My brothers and sisters, can a fig tree bear olives or a grapevine bear figs? Neither can a salt spring produce fresh water. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Lord Jesus, we come before you this morning as we open up your word. We are reminded that you are the word that became flesh, that dwelt among us, that lived the perfect life and died the death that we deserve the death that we would have coming to us, the death that we now get to in you find rescue from as we die in the waters of baptism and come forth into new life. You died and you rise again and we rise with you. And so God, I pray that these words would help us to live into that truth in deeper ways. Help us to hear your word and become more like you when we leave than when we came. It is in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. One of my um, favorite TV shows of all time is The Office. Anybody here an Office fan? Show of hands. Um, It just shows you how sinful your pastor is when he tells you the TV shows he watches. So some of you are like, oh, he's kind of a regular guy. If you don't know the show, um, it's a comedy that, that follows the lives of the staff of a small paper company um, in Scranton, Pennsylvania, and it's led by the embarrassingly insecure manager named Michael Scott, who's played by Steve Carell. And I, I remember one episode in particular, Michael Scott had found himself under the weight of financial debt, and he was overwhelmed, and he was always bringing his personal life into the office, and so he was talking about it in the break room, and I think it was Creed, another character in the office, who told him, you should declare bankruptcy. And he said, that sounds like a really great idea. The problem was Michael Scott did not know what it meant to declare bankruptcy, and so he took the word declare literally, and he stood before the entire office, and he got everybody's attention, and he said, I declare bankruptcy and the accountants pulled him aside and said there's a lot more to the process 
than saying I declare bankruptcy. But Michael would be forgiven for the confusion because if you think about it, sometimes it really is that simple, isn't it? Sometimes the words that we say, just one word or a few words, can and does change reality. You've, you've all heard the phrase, a picture is worth a thousand what? Words. But as I was thinking about it this week, I thought, you know, the same could be said by saying that one or two words can paint a thousand pictures. I want you just to close your eyes for a minute, and I want you to listen to some words. And as I speak these words, I want you to, to think about what picture does this paint for you? I love you. I hate you. Cancer. Remission. Hurricane. Marriage. There's been an accident. Pregnancy. Miscarriage. Abortion. Politics. Divorce. I'm so proud of you. You could never do this. I know you can do this. And open your eyes. All of us have experienced the power of words. Words that have come off of our own tongue and words that are still ringing in our ears and in our hearts well after they've been spoken. And that leads us into the fourth week of this series that we are in the middle of in the New Testament letter written by Jesus' own brother James. It's wildly practical, and today we're going to get into a whole other topic that's also going to shadow back to the things that we've learned so far in this series. It's about the power of words. Again, verse 1, James says this, Not many of you should become teachers, my fellow believers, because you know that we who teach will be judged more strictly. This reminds me of a leadership axiom that I've heard said by a number of different people, John Maxwell and others. Leadership is, say it with me, influence. You ever heard that before? Leadership is influence. The point is that we all are leaders. We all influence someone somewhere. If you're a parent, you are a leader in the lives of your kids, in your marriage, at your work. Even if you're not the manager, the way you speak, the way you work, the way you act is influencing the people around you. And James is suggesting here that with that potential for influence comes an inherent danger. Specifically, he's challenging those who are too quickly aspiring to become teachers and influencers within the Christian community. And so I was looking back at the Gospels this week, and I remembered that Jesus reserved his harshest words for hypocritical teachers in the faith because they were the people that other people were coming to to learn the love of God. 
And so not only should we be sure that we know what we're talking about before we're teaching, but even more important than that, anybody who teaches needs to practice what they preach. And, and friends, that's really the deeper problem so often, isn't it? Because in this day and age, knowledge is plentiful. It was, it was plentiful for the religious leaders that Jesus would challenge. They had gone through years and years of school and understanding tradition and scriptures. And I would argue that it is plentiful to us today. We have never had more knowledge at our fingertips than we do right now. I was thinking about growing up and how when I was growing up, I would ask my parents about all sorts of things that I didn't understand. You remember that, right? Like, why is the sky blue? And how does gravity work? And all of those kinds of things. And the beautiful thing about being a parent at that time was that your parents knew everything and you couldn't check their answers, right? Now, my kids don't even ask me those questions. Do you know who they ask? Alexa. <laughs> or Google, or whatever. And then if I do answer it, and they wonder if I'm really telling them the truth, or if I really understand what I'm saying, they will check my work, and they will see whether or not what I said is true. Knowledge is not always the problem. Sometimes the problem is living the knowledge. And James knows this. Look at what he says in verse 2. He says, we all stumble in many ways. Anybody who is never at fault in what they say is perfect, able to keep their whole body in check. Is anybody here perfect? No. Nobody is perfect. You might remember back in chapter 1, James offers some wisdom that our trials, our suffering produces perseverance. In verse 4 it says, let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. This is a reminder to anyone reading this that none of us are above the need to grow, that we all are lacking something. None of us have reached completion yet. And I shared the story of Johnny Erickson Tata that week and how she's confined to a wheelchair, and she's written extensively about her experience of faith in that particular context. And, and after one of the services, somebody came up to me because they followed Johnny Tata, and they said, did you know that she was recently diagnosed with cancer? And I said, no, I didn't know that. And she said she wrote about it. And she said that when she found out that she has cancer, her prayer to God was, God, what are you trying to teach me now? What do I need to learn from this experience? And, and I'll be the first to admit, when I heard that, I admire that kind of faith. And I also realize that so often I don't have that kind of faith when I get that kind of message myself. I wish that there was an easier way to develop perseverance and move toward completion than walking through times of suffering. It reminded me of when I was in high school, I ran long distance track. And so the long distance runners, the way that we would often practice is there's this trail that goes along the front of our school and goes miles and miles down the road. And our coach, is, is, he was long past his days of running. And so what he would do is he would sit at the start of the path and he would send all the long distance runners and he would sit there and watch to make sure that he could see us until we got to a certain distance where he couldn't see us anymore because we had run far enough away. And what we learned very quickly was that as we ran down the trail, about halfway to as far as where we were supposed to go, there was this bridge. And if you were quick enough, 
as you were jogging over the bridge, you could jump under the bridge and you could take a nice little break. And he would never be the wiser until you waited an appropriate amount of time and you got back up and you started to run the other direction. And some of you are thinking lesser of me as your pastor now that you know that I spent some time under that bridge. But here, here's why I thought of it, okay? I could always feel the effect of that decision in two different instances. The first time was when someone would run over the bridge who didn't take a break like I did. I felt a twinge of guilt. I knew that I wasn't doing what I was there set out to do, but the time that I really felt the effects of it was the next track meet when I was running a race, maybe about mile number two, when I didn't have the endurance to get past that moment and to do my best as I was running the race. It took me a while to learn that. I'm glad I did track. I am not a natural runner. I'm not one of those people that likes running. I'm one of those people that says if I'm running, look and see who's chasing me, you know, that thing. Like, I've never been a natural runner, but it taught me endurance. And I wish that there was a different way to get strengthened in running than to actually run. And I wish that in the words of James that we could all be mature and complete and, and that we wouldn't have to go through times of trial and suffering. But I'm not mature and complete, not completely, and neither are you. And in chapter 3, James tells us that if you want to know where you're at in that journey to completion, your words are a good litmus test. Your words are a reflection of where you still need to go. In other words, if you want to know where you're at, take a mental inventory of all the things that you've said in the last day or the last week or the last month. And show of hands, how many of us have said something that we wish we didn't say? Show of hands. And the people that aren't raising their hands are the introverts that thought about saying something that they wish that they wouldn't say. And I think that the indication is the same for you as well. We've all said things that we regret. We've all said words that change the dynamic of a relationship. We've all said or not said things that altered the way in which people think about us or think about others. Look again at verse 2. He says, anybody who is never at fault in what they say is perfect. Which means if you're not perfect, there are times when you're at fault in what you say. Anyone who is never at fault in what they say is perfect, able to keep their whole body in check. Not only are our words an indication of where we need to learn and grow, but what we're going to turn to understand next is that our words also have an extraordinary impact in leading us in the direction that we want to go. And this is why James is so harsh on those who are teaching in the context of the church. But as I think about this, I don't think it's just confined to teachers in the church. It's not just pastors. It's not just Sunday school teachers. But in Christ, the Bible says that if you're a Christian, we're all priests, right? The, 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 the temple veil was torn in two. We are temples of the Holy Spirit. And what that means is that Everything you say and do, if you are a professing Christian, somehow, in some way, reflects what you believe about God to the people around you. And so it matters. 
Verse 3, he says, when we put bits in the mouths of horses to make them obey us, we turn the whole animal. Or take ships for an example. Although they are large and driven by strong winds, they're steered by a very small rudder wherever the pilot wants to go. Likewise, the tongue is a small part of the body, but it makes great boasts. Consider what a great forest is set on fire by a small spark. The tongue also is a fire, a world of evil among the parts of the body. It corrupts the whole body, sets the whole course of one's life on fire, and is itself set on fire by hell. Where you want to go in life and in faith might just begin with the words that you say. Let me say that again. Where you want to go in life and in faith might just begin with the words that you say. And I was reminded of this in my own life. I've shared with you the story before. My, my wife, Alyssa, is, is not handled, her body is not handled pregnancy well. She's handled pregnancy amazing. Um, but in our children that have been born biologically, she has been very sick with each one of them. And with our firstborn and with our most recent born, um, Grayson, thankfully, those complications progressed and she was able to get well quickly. But with our second son, Evan, that wasn't the case. And there was this period of time where she was literally not able to get out of bed. And if you know my wife, Alyssa, you know that is the opposite of her personality. And yet that's just where she was. And they didn't know what was wrong. And she's a nurse, and so she was working with a bunch of doctors and asking all these people what they thought. And at one point, they thought that it was her gallbladder, and so they took that out, and that didn't help. It was like weeks after she had given birth to Evan, so you have a baby, and now you have this major surgery, and all of this stuff is going on. And the doctors were stumped, and we were stumped, and we didn't know what was going on. And as I think back at that time, I was overwhelmed. I was overwhelmed as a husband. My wife was sick. There was nothing I could do to help her. I was overwhelmed as a father of a newborn child and a two-year-old. I was overwhelmed as I was working full-time in the church. And on top of that, I was getting my master's degree full-time. All of this stuff was going on at the same time. And I remember being so overwhelmed with life that I didn't have the capacity to be there for Alyssa in the way that she needed me to be, and frankly, in the way that she deserved me to be. And I knew it. And I'll never forget the moment that I felt convicted over it. I was sitting at my desk in my basement office, and God almost spoke to me. It wasn't audible, but I could feel the impression on my mind and on my heart. I could almost hear God saying to me, Tom, what are you waiting for? You know what your wife needs. You know how you need to be there for her. You know what you need to do. Why are you waiting until you feel like it? Just do it. And so I did. I literally left that room and I went upstairs and I crawled into bed. She was in bed at the time. And I asked her how she was feeling even though I was so exhausted that there was a part of me that didn't even have the capacity to ask her and to absorb that onto my own shoulders. I started asking the questions. 
I had been going to the doctor's appointments, but I started to bring a notebook, and I started to ask my own questions. She's the nurse. I never really invested in that, but she's sick, and she doesn't know what to do, and so I started to ask questions. I started to call doctors myself. I started to read articles about her symptoms. I started to tell her more than just maybe once a day before we went to bed that I loved her. And I told her that I was sorry that she wasn't feeling well. And I didn't know this at the time, but it was later on that she told me in tears that she remembers that moment too. Because in that moment, I'm embarrassed to tell you this, she was beginning to wonder if I even cared. And the truth is, of course, I mean, of course I cared. But on another level, I couldn't care. For a variety of reasons, I did not have the capacity to care in that particular moment. But when I began to say the words, slowly but surely, the words led to my actions. And the actions eventually led to feelings. And I'll tell you, it's a lot easier to come alongside the people in your life that you love when you feel love for them. But there are times when we don't always have those feelings available. And if I waited until I felt like doing all the things that I needed to do for my wife, I'm terrified to wonder where I would be and what story I would be telling you right now. We've been married for 15 years. We were together for almost 20 years now. And so I'm not naive enough to think that this could have gone a different place. It could have gone a different way. She might have at some point given up on me ever caring, and I I might have at some point given up on putting in the efforts to care. It's the truth for all of us, as parents, as spouses, as friends. And so what James is telling us here is that if you want to begin to move toward the the better future that God has for you, whether it be in your marriage or in the relationship with your kids or whatever it might be, it might very well begin with your words. You might be feeling convicted right now and maybe the best thing for you to do in worship is to get up or take out your phone and send some words to someone that you have not spoken these words to. Tell someone you love them. Tell them you're sorry. Tell them you care whether you feel like it or not. This is why when we come together for church we have these practices like singing songs, right? And, and it's why churches recite ancient creeds like the Apostles' Creed and the Nicene Creed. Do you know why we do that? We do it because sometimes we need to be reminded what we believe because we walk into the church and we have questions and we have doubts and we've gone through some, some terrible things that week and so we come in and we are reminded through words that those words might lead us into the future. And I say that because so much of church these days, particularly the American version of it, has become so much about our emotions and evoking emotions. And it's become about so many things like developing good life skills that are biblically based. And, and none of that's bad because we're all emotional creatures, right? And we all need experiences and teachings that help us to live a biblical way in all of the different areas of our lives. But the danger is that if we begin in that place and we only allow our words to flow out of our emotions or how we feel or what we actually understand about God, what does James tell us? Nobody's perfect, right? 
And so if nobody's perfect, this is why James is so serious when he challenges those who teach. It's terrifying to be an imperfect vessel pointing people to a perfect God. I should know. I do it every week. It's terrifying. And I mean that sincerely. The night that I sleep the worst is Saturday night because I feel the weight of what's going on here and I am well aware of my imperfections. I see why James is telling us that this is a big deal. And so I think about the history of the church and our traditions have actually helped buffer this danger. For example, even just the architecture of the church is designed to help us. In traditional church architecture, back even before the time of Christ, a ship was a symbol as much as it was a tool. And it was a symbol to people of something that takes you from one world to the next. Because that's how it felt before we had a globe. And before we had a global understanding, that's how it feels. And so you would get on a ship and it would protect you on your journey from one world to the next. And so early church architecture was designed. If you look up right now, this church was designed this way. It's designed like a ship to remind us that in a very similar way, that's God's design for the church. The place that you're standing right now, I told Pammy I was going to walk down the aisle. She's got to move all the cameras around for those of you joining us online. You're standing in what's called the nave traditionally, which comes from the Latin word that we get words like navy from. It means ship. But in order to come into the nave, you first have to walk through this room. And traditionally, this room is called the narthex. Now, I didn't grow up in the church, not going very often. I thought narthex was a dinosaur. It's not. What it is, is actually not unlike the purpose that it serves for us right now. We've got a coffee bar. We've got a place where people can gather. The narthex was the place where people could come from off the street and they could hear the message of God. They could hear the sermon. They could hear the gospel. But they couldn't come in until they were baptized. And so have you ever been in a church where there's a baptismal font that sits right here? This is the, the reminder to us that in order to come into the nave, to come into the ship, we're in the waters, right? We're in the hurricane, we're in the winds, and we come to the waters of baptism. And baptism reminds us in, it, in a very real sense as we lean into those waters, we allow them to overcome us like the storm of life, like what life does. It's our sin, right? We die in the water. And the water and the word overcomes us, and we choose it because when we come out of the water, we are a new creation. We are now eternal. We are now invited into the presence of God. His grace is with us. He has given us faith. We know that death will not have the final sting, okay? And so you don't come into the nave until you have gone into the water and you come out. But when you're baptized and now you're forgiven and redeemed and you're in Christ, do you leave and go back into the hurricane waters? No, you come into the ship. You come into the ship, which is going to carry us together with the Spirit of God and protect us in the waters, whether those waters are calm or whether those waters are rough. And at the front is the pulpit, the Word of God that is directing us to where we are called to go because all of us are imperfect and so we read the perfect words of the one who came to be the word in the flesh and it directs us and guides us to where we are to go. 
Does anybody here find that history helpful? <laughs> to know that when we walk into the church, the building itself is telling us that we're all in the same boat. <laughs> That we are literally all in the same boat. And I I read this quote by Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. He said, "We, we may have all come on different ships, but we are all in the same boat now. And I think about those words, powerful words, from a man who gave his life to challenge us to live what we said we believe as a nation in the face of the sin we talked about last Sunday, the sin of favoritism, as it manifests itself through racism. Powerful words from a Christian minister as we too are reminded of this truth as we enter the ship of the church each and every week. It is a reminder to you and to me. It is a reminder as your imperfect pastor. St. John's is going to be 125 years old next year. Can you believe that? 125 years old. This is a reminder to me that the words that matter are not my words but the words of God that have been spoken in this place for 125 years because it is his words that change things. In Genesis, when we learn the origin story of all creation, we learn that God created the world with his words. He said, let there be light. He created trees and animals and people from his words. In the gospel, on the boat, there was a storm and Jesus calmed the storm with his words. He said, calm, be still. And the wind stopped and the waves died down in marriage. How do we create a marriage, right? It's through words. It's not the photographer. That doesn't matter. It's not the pastor. It's not any of this. It is the two words that these people say to one another, and the Spirit of God comes between I do. The Apostle Paul said in Romans 10, if you declare with your mouth, with your words, Jesus is Lord, and if you believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And Jesus said it this way in Matthew, the mouth speaks what the heart is full of. If you believe in your heart that God raised Jesus from the dead, that is what your heart will speak. And it's not just in going to people door to door and saying, I believe in Jesus, he's in my heart. Maybe that's one of the things that you might say, but I think what might be an even more powerful witness is when your words reflect the words that God has spoken over you. You are chosen. You are good. I love you. I forgive you. Jesus says a good man brings good things out of the good stored up in him and an evil man brings evil things out of the evil stored up in him. It is God who makes us good. And friends, that's why we come to church. That's why we pray. It's why we sing songs and we recite ancient creeds and we study the word because it is our way of allowing God to store up good in us that we might leave this place and pour out that good into the world around us through our words. And so I said it before, and I'm going to say it again. The most worshipful, faithful thing that you're going to do this week has nothing to do with what you're doing in church right now. And it will have everything to do with the way in which you respond. Is there someone you need to reach out to? 
Is there someone you need to say I'm sorry to? Is there someone you need to forgive? Is there someone you need to love? Is there someone that you have not had the capacity to be faithful to? And you need to allow your words to lead you into a better place. I want you to ask God to place that person or that relationship or those words on your heart as we watch this video. You don't have a ton of things in common with God, but there is one thing. You speak. So does he. God spoke light into existence with his words. I wonder what you could speak into existence with your words this week. I wonder what kind of love you could speak into your marriage that feels like it's in neutral. I wonder what kind of courage you could speak into the heart of a child who's hurting. I wonder what kind of peace you could speak into your broken friendship. What kind of hope you could speak into your own weary soul. I want you to know that the most powerful words you're gonna speak this week is probably not gonna be on a stage or a conference call or closing the deal with a client that you want. The most powerful words you're gonna speak is probably just with one or two people listening, maybe zero. It's totally possible that the most powerful sentence you'll say this week is a thoughtful text message that you send to a friend who's walking through the valley of the shadow of death. It's the apology email that you finally get the courage to send it's the whispered prayers through tears in the middle of a dark night. Powerful words aren't just for preachers who stand behind pulpits. They're for parents who stand next to bunk beds. Speak life with their kids, their spouses who share hopes and dreams pillow talk not criticism for teenagers who stand up to bullies stand up for the uncool kids your tongue is so small but so powerful your tongue is telling a story